Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hawaii Kai Church on this Easter and Resurrection Sunday. We're very thankful that you could be here with us, especially if you haven't been here in a while. Uh, we're, we're, uh, we do want to welcome you back. I think it's been really good over the past several weeks and months to see more and more of our church coming back to in-person services, and I look forward to a time where we can do more together. Uh, if you have your Bibles with you, would you please take them out and turn them to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 35. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 35 through 45 is our passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 35 through 45. Now, if you are new with us, what we generally do on any given Sunday is to open our Bibles, which is God's Word, and we read the text and explain the text as clearly and as accurately as we can, and then we try and connect this truth to our very lives. But, but this Bible is what is central to any message that we want to give behind this pulpit. Uh, the Bible is not a launching point to move on to something else. This is the meat and the potatoes. And so as a pastor, it doesn't really matter what I think about this or that or what my personal preferences are. This isn't a platform for politics or, or social commentary. No, the sermon, the, the message is primarily about God's word and, and what he thinks and what his opinions are. It's his commentary about humanity and about himself as he reveals himself to us in his word. And so my job isn't to invent a message or, or to even entertain you or to be innovative in that sense. But my job is to relay what God has already said and what he has already given to us in these very pages. The truth found in this book is, is timeless. And so we try our best to let the Bible determine the content of every message and the substance of every sermon that, that the hearer would see that what is being preached comes primarily from the book and that God's word would indeed be central. This is one of our deep convictions here at Hawaii Kai Church, and so if you are new with us, even if you're not new with us, uh, this is why we preach the way that we do. And so I invite you to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 35, and, and I'll read the passage to you. It says, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For star differs from star in glory. So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Would you please pray with me? Father, we thank you for this time, and we ask that by your grace, uh, mercy, and love, that you would please speak to us and impress upon our minds and our hearts the reality of the resurrection. By the Holy Spirit, would you make this truth real to us? Teach us to number our days that we may gain hearts of wisdom. Uh, please show to us the glory of Jesus Christ. Would you open our eyes? 
and especially open the eyes of those who may not know you. Show us how much you love us and how much we need you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One of the great Christian confessions is that death is not the end of us. There is life beyond the grave. And the life that we are currently living is actually likened in James chapter 4 to a vapor, a, a mist, which appears for such a short window of time before quickly fading away. The afterlife is so much more substantial in length and in breadth into eternity that as significant as life is right now, in comparison, it is relatively just a puff of air, which makes what Jesus accomplished on a Good Friday so important. Josh just preached this to us on Friday. Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, God himself, came into this world innocent and holy unlike any of us, pure and sinless. And yet exactly like us in that he became a human being, tempted in every kind of way. And he chooses voluntarily to suffer a death that he did not deserve, to pay for a set of sins that he did not commit, and to feel the just and righteous wrath of God against our wickedness upon his very own body and soul, that by his wounds we may be healed, that through his suffering we may have life that our sin would be imputed to him and his righteousness would be imputed to us. It is because of his great love for us that he does suffer for us upon the cross in the believer's place so that sinners like me and like you, that we might actually come to know God and be forgiven and be made new to live different lives that honor him and to enjoy a fellowship with him, a relationship, a joy that will not end in our death on earth, but that will continue for centuries beyond this time. Jesus Christ dies upon the cross to secure eternal life, which begins now and continues into the afterlife for any and for all who return from their sin and put their trust and their faith and belief in him. This is the work that was accomplished on a Good Friday. But Good Friday has to have a Resurrection Sunday. Jesus can't stay in the grave and still be our Savior. Verse 17 of our same chapter, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins than those who have fallen asleep in Christ. That means those who have passed away. They have perished. The gospel hinges on the resurrection. The resurrection is just as integral and foundational to Christian faith as a cross itself. And it's Christ's very own bodily resurrection that secures our own bodily resurrections. It's the very fact that he has been raised, which proves that he will raise us up on that last day. But we come to a text now where that very truth has been put into question. Because in the skeptic's mind, dead people, they don't live again. Bodies that experience rot and decay, they don't come back to life. It's kind of a ridiculous idea that we would ever rise again bodily. I mean, how does that even work? We're going to be these Frankensteins of bones and pieces of flesh, and, and we're somehow going to be sewn back together again. Hope you didn't lose any parts. And the longer that it is that Jesus takes, the worse we're going to be because of the decomposition. God, don't you know science? What about those who've been cremated? What about those who drowned in the ocean? What about those who were mangled or who died in car accidents? Let's be reasonable now, a bodily resurrection. And the skeptic's position is, if we cannot understand how it will happen, then we will not believe that it could happen. 
If we can't wrap our minds around it, then it's impossible that it could ever be real. It's in our text today that Paul's answering exactly this kind of objection. Let's read again in verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen. And to each kind of seed, its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there's one kind for humans, another kind for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For star differs from star in glory. How can the dead be raised? The answer to that question really is that God has the power to creatively do whatever it is he wants to do. Look at the universe. And what may seem impossible to us is, is not impossible to him at all, even if we can't quite explain it. Paul's rebuttal to the skeptics is take a look at creation itself. Open your eyes and see what it is that is all around you. And the first image he gives to us is that of a kernel, a seed. You, you put a seed into the ground and it dies. It decomposes, and yet that is not the end of that seed. An entire plant can come out of that seed. Grain comes out of that seed. A huge redwood tree that you can drive your car through can come out of a dead seed that originally fit into the palm of your hand. And prior to advancements in botany, no one really understood how that could be. That contained within a single small pellet could come extra large life like that. And that seed has to be put into the ground before it can bring forth the life it was designed to sprout upward. It actually has to die first. That's the process. Death is the means. And it's only by death that this life does come forward. This is an analogy of the resurrection, that all around us, plant life is preaching to us. And when you drive home and you see the trees, they're proclaiming the resurrection to you, that a seed lives after a burial, and life comes after the grave. And it would seem impossible that that little thing could become something like that. But it's not. I'm sure most of us in this room can't explain how it happens, but God has designed it and created it to be that way. I mean, try telling your little ones after eating watermelon that one of those little black seeds can bring forth a fruit that's too heavy for you to carry. And then tell your kids that the life they live today is just a seed of something they can't even imagine into the future. Now, Paul's not saying that the way the seed decomposes is how our bodies decompose, and then we are going to have these little sprouts, and we'll come out of the ground looking like group. No, it's, it's an analogy that what is sown and what is buried can give birth to something that would seem impossible. How? But it's not unfeasible, because we see the analogous happening all around us. And so the question, how are the dead raised? Well, the seemingly impossible is actually quite prevalent on God's green earth by God's own creative design. The concept of the resurrection is everywhere, if we would, but just open our eyes. The second question posed is, with what kind of body do they come? And Paul wants us again to look around at all the different bodies of God's creation, from people to dogs to fish in the ocean to the minor birds on the roof of your house. Look at God's creative diversity. You know, this past month, we had some pretty cold nights, some rain, and the kids were worried about our dog Maddie sleeping outside under the little night cover. And I had to point out to them that she has a built-in fur coat. 
She's designed to be comfortable even when it hits into the frigid low 70s. We have a a little fish tank filled with critters we picked up from Sandy, snails and hermit crabs, a slug. And the crab's claws trim the algae and eat. They don't need fingers like we do. They need scissor hands, diversity. Fish don't need legs. They need fins. And they are perfectly suited for their environment. Birds need wings because they fly more than they run. But even beyond the earth, if you lift your chin and look at the skies, the blazing sun is contrasted with a cool night moon. Their glories are different, and yet one governs the night and the other governs the day. Every star is unique from the next. Uh, Andrew Rep at our all-church retreat two years ago, he brought out his astronomy gear, if you remember. And we all got to take turns and, and see the detail of the moon and all its nooks and crannies, the differences in the stars and how each one is unique from the next. Who is it that brought all of this into existence? We believe the first two chapters of the book of Genesis, we know that God brought all things into existence. And the way that he did this is what theologians call creation ex nihilo, creation out of nothing. Because everything that you can see and everything that's too small to see or too far to see, God created it out of nothing. He simply spoke and it came to be. Let there be and then there was. That's how powerful God's word is. And if we would just but look around us, creation cries out as well. It preaches and it proclaims the power of its creator. Romans 1.20 tells us this, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. The God who can carefully shape a fish's fin and put fur on the back of a dog and eyebrows on our faces so that shampoo doesn't go into our eyeballs. The God who brought all of this into being at the mere sound of his voice, he can resurrect the dead into an entirely new life which is specifically appropriate for eternal life. The creator can give form in a distinct and a unique resurrected body to everyone who believes in him. That's the argument here. You know, the the skeptic's position is often if we can't understand how it will happen, then we will not believe that it could happen. If we can't wrap our minds around it and explain it, then it's impossible that it could be real. That position is really a position of arrogance, as if God's power is somehow limited by our own perception. Can you imagine if God were limited to the confines of our little minds? As if nothing by definition could exist unless little old me could explain it. There's a supreme arrogance in that. It's taken us hundreds of years to figure out that there's creatures in the deep, deep sea that can somehow produce a little bit of light on their own to see. It took us centuries before we found something as wonderful as that which God spoke into being in a moment. Even the furthest galaxies. It's taken us ages to develop the technology just to see that far. What took moments for God to bring into existence. Some spend their entire careers looking further and further into the sky only to find that there is no end. And yet if we can't wrap our minds around it, it can't exist? What's so incredible about a resurrection of the body to the very creator of the universe? Which is why Paul responds in this very appropriate way, you fool, you arrogant fool. If you didn't, just, that just because we can't explain something means it's impossible for God to bring it forward. The real question being asked is not how are the dead raised, but how can God raise the dead? 
God's not limited by our finite minds. And while the details of the resurrection do remain a mystery, its mystery does not speak against its reality. And so God can creatively do what seems impossible. Even a dead kernel can become something you couldn't predict. And God can shape and form and make a body suitable for its surroundings, whether on land, in sea, air, or space, or eternity. It's with these concepts that we move to the next set of verses where Paul continues to answer the question, with what kind of body? Verse 42, we continue. So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown in natural body. It is raised in spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is a spiritual body. In answering the question, with what kind of body do they come, Paul doesn't really give to us too many specific details. He doesn't tell us what age we're going to appear as or what our physical bodies are going to actually look like or if we're finally going to get that six-pack we never got here. You know, Paul doesn't describe our future bodies with this kind of detail, but he does distinguish them from our current bodies. That the movement is from decay to incorruptibility from humiliation to glory, weakness to power, from the natural to the spiritual, that the kernel, the seed of our earthly bodies, is going to give rise to something that we could barely imagine. And it will be as different as the kernel in the palm of your hand to the redwood tree that you could drive your car through. Paul's picking up the same seed imagery here as he uses the word sown and raised. What is sown is perishable. Our bodies right now, we don't get better with age. We had a physical peak in the first quarter of our lives, and then it's all downhill. In our own church family, there's cancer among us, uh, dementia, tormenting some, eye issues, back surgeries, heart problems, digestive issues. The list goes on and on and on. Just read the prayer list. We get old and flaky, stinky and wrinkly. Our organs don't work the way that they used to work. Our bodies are in this continual state of degradation. No one can deny that, that we are perishable. But our bodies will be raised imperishable, no longer subject to aging, disease, or death. And in fact, by definition, we will be unable to perish in the ways that we know now. And there will be a time when a thousand years have passed that we will look back upon this vapor of a life and not even remember what it was like to have really been broken or hurt, or in that kind of pain, or what it was like to pray really hard for someone who was sick. And then we'll come to the realization then exactly how much death has been swallowed up in victory in the resurrection. Our bodies are also, it says here, sown in dishonor. There's something about each of us that is just not very honorable. There's not a single person in this room who doesn't have a skeleton in their closet. Not a single one of us. And if every deed and every thought and every motive would ever be laid bare, I mean open, we would have some highlights for sure, no doubt, but our lowlights would stand out all the more starkly and frankly embarrass us. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. And even the things that we are ashamed of and the remorse and the regret that we feel when our conscience begins to hit us are I still don't see it with 100% accuracy. As broken as we are, our actions and thoughts are actually worse than they are. I remember hearing, I think, a Puritan quote, this confession. In my best and holiest prayer, there is enough sin to damn the whole world. 
And our, our eyes don't see dishonor like God can see the depths of our dishonor. And at the end of the day, we understand more and more that, that there are really no good people in the purest definition of the word. There may be better people than others. We call them good. There may be worse people on a relative scale. We call them bad. I'm better than the bad person, so I must be good. That's relative. But before the Lord of glory, in utter perfection and holiness, we are not good. Your lust, your short temper, your bitterness, your, your envy, that settled anger that eats you up, that pride that says, I deserve better than what I'm getting, that self-centeredness, your disinterest in God, your lack of hunger for him, your ignoring of him even day to day, your lack of thirst for anything righteous, your proneness to have eyes that wander and are captivated by lesser things, creature rather than creator. Even in our closest relationships, marriage and parenting, where we should be at our best with the people we love most. That should be our highest arena. Perhaps the most appropriate word to describe us is dishonorable when we're at our worst. Who can deny it? And yet in the resurrection, the believer will be raised in glory. Glory is the word being used here. There's a day coming where we will not fall anymore. We will never go astray again. We will not turn to the left or to the right, but all will love the Lord with all of our hearts, souls, minds. We will love him with all of our strength, and we will perfectly love one another even as we love ourselves. Glory. And then we'll understand then just how great these commandments are when they actually come to fruition perfectly. I mean, can you imagine the joy? I think for a lot of us, imagining a sin-free, glory-filled existence is way more appealing than a disease-free body, is it not? And this will be our reality, not for a week, but forever and ever in the ages to come. We, build, we will be raised in, in glory. And sometimes we, we just have to dwell on what is to come a little bit more than we do to keep the right perspective on what it is that really matters. Paul continues to explain that our bodies are, are also sown in weakness. My little son, Braden, he uses a, a massage gun in my back almost every day. I never needed that before. But our bodies are weak, and they are only getting weaker. Weakness is what characterizes our bodies. But one day, the word that would be more apt is power. I want to borrow from an article written by Marshall Siegel. He writes this, weakness has a beautiful, God-designed, God-honoring and temporary purpose. In a broken and weak world, longing for healing, strength, and freedom, our weaknesses highlight the power of God to save and sustain. When we're weak, it actually highlights something about God because he's carrying weak people all the way to the end. That means he's powerful. For now, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us, 2 Corinthians 4, 7. In glory, though, it's our power and not our weakness which will magnify his surpassing power. His power will always be greater than ours, but we will trade our frailty for real stability, ability, and strength. We don't have to be content any longer with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. We won't have any to be content with. When we look back on our lives with the eyes and strength of redeemed bodies, 
Weakness will feel like a faint and pleasant memory, like sleepless newborn nights. Parents, remember that? It's just a faint memory. Pleasant because we will be able to see just how much the pain and inconvenience of our weakness exalted his comfort, power, and love. For now, we experience his power through weakness, but then we will experience his power without weakness. I mean, right now, when we're weak, then we're strong, right? Because we've got to rest on God even more. Then when we are strong, we're going to understand his power in a different light. I don't even know what that's going to be like. It's so foreign to our existence today. I can't wait. And the final contrast we see here is, is between the natural and the spiritual. If there is a natural body, there is a spiritual body. That doesn't mean that one's physical and the other is not physical. That would defeat Paul's entire argument of chapter 15 of a bodily resurrection. But a natural body is fitted for this world. And there's a spiritual body, as described in these very verses, that is fitted for the next one. One is a seed sown. The other is life that comes forth from it by the very hands of our creator God. And like a bird needs wings and a fish needs fins, we're going to need our new resurrected bodies to be appropriately fitted for all of eternity. And so there is a continuity of who we are and at the same time a discontinuity of what we will become. And this is one of the great Christian confessions that our deaths on this earth are absolutely not the end of us. There is life beyond the grave, and it's going to be glorious. But Christianity is not merely a confessional faith where we nod our heads and say, yes, that's true, the resurrection is real, without any tangible, actual effect upon our living today. If the future resurrection of the dead is coming, and it is this amazing, then it changes everything about today. I mean, our very writer, Paul, he frequented the jails, was constantly in trouble with the law that criminalized his faith. He experienced a lot of pain, a lot of beatings, a lot of lashes on his backs. God gave him a thorn in his side to keep him humble. I mean, he felt his pride, and he knew that God made him weak for a purpose. He was disowned by his contemporaries, who frankly didn't believe what Paul stood for, that it was even true. And they didn't stay neutral about it. They actually turned against him. They wanted to kill him. He lost a lot of friends, and yet he writes with his own hand in Romans 8, 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. You can't compare. It's like dust on the scales. One life is just a vapor. The next is of substance. And our highest experiences of God in this life are best times in fellowship with him are just merely scratching the surface of what is to come. Last weekend, uh, Pastor Dave shared an illustration about how a coin, a quarter held up close enough to your eye can actually block out the sun, as small as it is. Perspective, and I, and I think the same visual can be used here, that this vapor of a life, this, this little mitt, this small coin held up so close to our face can actually block the prospect of this glorious resurrection. That sometimes our suffering, maybe it's this illness or this broken relationship, this family drama, not getting what I wanted out of my career, this, this midlife crisis, this divorce, the pain of this wayward child or not being able to have children. It's all we can see 
It's all we can feel, and that's all we can bring up to our eyes, and it blocks out the fact that this is seed life. It's not forever. It's, it's a process that requires a dying of sorts so that we might truly live. We have to pull away a little bit and dwell on what it is that we will actually become. And other times it's the opposite, that it's our comforts and our ambitions and our successes held right up to the eye. Strive so hard to make my current body, my current career, my current financial situation, everything, and I'm getting it. My daydreams are becoming a reality to the point that I would frankly be disappointed if Jesus were to return anytime soon. Don't come back yet. I want to enjoy what I have. Going to the eye, blocking out the glory of the sun as if this little thing is somehow bigger. You know, parents, when I see the kids here, my kids, I want them to be like this, 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 and that, that, that. I want them to have everything the world has to offer. I want them to, you're throwing coins on their eyes. Taking them to every practice, every kind of tutoring, every kind of academic achievement, every college application builder, because this is so much more important than instilling in them a hope of future glory. Pains or comforts, struggles and ambitions can block the future resurrection from our minds so that we will focus all of our attention on the vapor, the midst that is here today and gone tomorrow. These can easily lead to a life that confesses resurrection but doesn't actually believe it. Brothers and sisters, our future resurrection is not some distant hope. It is a present possession that can actually change our present living. I think these verses call us to pull away a little bit and gain some perspective. This life is not the end of us. There is life beyond the grave. You know, trees don't talk about the old seed life all that much. We're designed to become something more. We're designed to be something different. And we have to intentionally direct our minds towards the coming resurrection that Jesus Christ secured with his very own resurrection. Verse 45, we'll close with this. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Jesus Christ is the last Adam, the last man in this parallel who gives us this new life. Jesus is the life-giving spirit. And, and Paul identifies us with the two Adams, the two humans representative of all people. The first Adam was shaped by God from the dust, and his very breath breathed into him, which gave him life. And Adam became a living being. And yet it was this Adam who received everything from God. In the perfect garden, it is this Adam who fell. All of us with him fell. And through his own sin and death, he brought sin into the world and caused all of humanity to become sinful and liable to death as well. It is in this first Adam and all of us with him that, that makes the world such a broken place, such a broken place with broken people who need grace and need help. But it is the last Adam, Jesus Christ, who takes on human flesh. He had a body just like the first Adam. He felt temptation just like the first Adam. But this last Adam, he did not sin. He did not fall. He lived entirely righteously. And it is through his death upon the cross and his resurrection from the grave that we, even though we are sinful, 
by his blood and by his resurrection. We experience forgiveness and new life, and we can enter into a new identity that is not characterized by sin and death, but is characterized instead by a new life and a new hope and a secure future that is altogether glorious. But this is only true if you're identified with the last Adam. This will only be true if you turn from your sin and repentance and put your trust and your belief, your faith in Jesus Christ, the one who gives life. You can trust him in this life. Absolutely. And you can trust him with your next one. But you must trust him. The gospel is a good news that our entire identities can be changed because the Son of God came for us, lived for us, died for us, rose again for us, ascended for us, and will one day return soon for us. Jesus Christ is everything. And the most important thing, the only thing we'll really remember for eternity is what we did with Jesus in this vapor of a short life. You must believe. Maybe some of you here are once a year. You have to believe. Maybe you're twice a year. You have to believe. Maybe you're 52 times a year at church. You have to put your faith in Jesus the Christ. You have to. It's the most important thing in this short life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. And Lord, who would have thought? Who would have thought that you would take people like us and make us your very own. And at such, the high, at such a high cost of, you, of your son coming, living, dying, experiencing death, resurrection, who would have thought that you would do this for us? Thank you, God, so much for loving us and giving us your son, Jesus Christ. And we ask that you would give us wisdom Give us perspective, not 10, 20-year perspective, 100, 200-year perspective. Help us to take the coins off our eyes a little bit and see the glory of, of everything that is to be and everything that you are. I pray, God, that you, by your spirit, would instill in us belief and love and eternal life. Lord, we want to know you more and more. I pray that you would let us know you more and more. We ask these things for our church. We ask that you would use our church and our community, that through the people in this very room, you would bring many to come to know you and have life and life eternal. All for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.